I'm Kelly Hoey, host of Broadmic. I speak with the most accomplished entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders about the issues that matter in building a business. You will get the inspiration as well as the picks and shovels you need to become a better entrepreneur. Be inspired, take action, think broad. Broadmic is taking a short break to produce season two. While we are gone, we are releasing exclusive bonus content from all of our guests from season one. We hope you will enjoy hearing even more of the practical wisdom from our amazing guests. Broadmic will be back in a few weeks. In the meantime, think broad. So I want to ask you um, about a quote of Reed Hoffman's that appeared in a, a New Yorker article and. Um, it was in the context of pitch meetings and that minefield you've been through pitch meetings, two companies, all that kind of good stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, Reed Hoffman at, at VC at Greylock and co-founded LinkedIn, um, talking about when he wants to see in a pitch, says, I look to see if someone has a marine strategy for taking the beach, an army strategy for taking the country, and a police strategy for governing the cu- the country afterward. What's your reaction to that? So, um, so Reed's a friend of mine, and he is one of the smartest guys in technology that I know. Uh, and, and once again, I mean, that's that's just a genius quote. And maybe to unpack it a little, because I've actually been on both sides. I've I've done pitches, and I also hear a lot of pitches as an angel investor. And you know, you hear a lot of people that get pieces of that. So if you you say you know the beach strategy how do I how do I get in and disrupt an industry? Um, remind me of the second part. It's, of yeah, so it's the, it's the uh, marine strategy for taking the beach, army strategy for taking the country, yep. police strategy for governing the country afterwards. So you know, let's say you pick out your your land grab, what what you're going after, what space. You know, can you get in? Can you actually make a dent? Can you win? Can you take over this this um, this segment of the the industry that you're trying to disrupt? And then do you have a plan for how you're going to maintain your competitive advantage? And and I think you know so many pitches that I've heard will focus on you know taking the beach and not on how do I make money? How do I actually make this a functioning country? Uh, and then you say okay, but then even if you can do that, how do you not get disrupted then? And I think. The rare entrepreneur is the one that can think through all three of those things. What's my entry strategy? What's my growth strategy? And what's my, once I've grown, continue to keep this thing running in a healthy way and growing further? So I think it's it's a brilliant way to look at at pitching a business. And making sure that your pitch deck has got all those pieces so in he, it. He actually has, um, he published LinkedIn Series B pitch deck. And so for anyone who is thinking of pitching a VC, I strongly recommend it because it is annotated with all his notes as to why. And, and what you'll be stunned to look at is, because uh, I've, I've looked at it, you know, just because it's it's such a well-done um, piece to, for him to have published and so useful for, for entrepreneurs to look at, uh, is that he actually walks through what the weaknesses in their pitch were in the LinkedIn pitch was and so um, and how he overcame them. You know, one of the things was they, they had like no revenue or de minimis revenue, which, you know, I know is surprising to you, Kelly, probably in the technology world that people would actually pitch without revenue. 
I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> you have to do this it all is, the time. No, this is like, again, when we should have had video because everyone could see the sarcasm on our faces yeah. with that one. No, <laughs> pitching it, a company with no revenue, who would do that? Which you read a lot about in, you know, in the press, but uh, it actually is something venture capitalists do care about revenue, contrary to popular opinion, and, and they want to have an answer to that. And, and so he walks through in the pitch how they were actually able to explain, like, this is why at this point, you shouldn't care about revenue, and this is where the revenue will kick in. Like, here's the monetization engine that we're building. So, you know, our first entry point is is one that won't generate revenue. So, you know, taking the beach won't generate revenue. But when we take over the country, boy, are we going to have a tax base that's huge. And here's where we expand to once we've done that. So he, he actually walks through slide by slide and has notes on each slide as to why it was in their presentation. Super helpful. That is that is like those those times when you hear something like that where the generosity of someone and and saying like as i say to people here's like here's investors i like or here's networking groups i like or here's an angel group i like because they're entrepreneurial friendly they are about the entrepreneur and if that is an like a billboard sign of of reed hoffman being like an investor you want because that is beyond helpful no and he i mean you can tell he's an entrepreneur at heart because he he does have you know a largesse about giving, and an openness and sharing and and to me that is a theme of the place that we're headed. You know those types of people, that mentality is what wins in this world. It's the hoarding mentality that doesn't. All right, I need to ask you about a quote that was in. Uh the New Yorker, mm-hmm. and it was on pitching and pitch meetings being minefields, um, and there was a quote from Reed Hoffman at Greylock, you know, co-founded LinkedIn, mm-hmm. Yeah, and the quote, and it was, I believe it was to Mark Andreessen, and he said, let me, let me read this, I look to see if someone has a marine strategy for taking the beach an army strategy for taking the country, and a police strategy for governing the country afterward. And we wonder why there are not more female entrepreneurs in legacy VC portfolios. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? It's uh, Every single one of those analogies is wholly male, right? It's a military analogy. It's a police analogy. Um you know, it's completely fucked up. I'm sorry, but but this is one of the the big problems that I think women face with legacy VCs. And by the way, Reed Hoffman is a really nice guy. You know, this is not about him being a bad person, but um, but the way you get in to see the partners at one of the large legacy VCs is through referrals. Um, Most people know to refer uh, entrepreneurs and businesses that look like other things they have done before. And the fact that Reed Hoffman, who is a lead partner there, is describing the, the entrepreneur they look for in those terms means that you know, no one is going to refer uh, the typical female entrepreneur. 
What would be your advice to a female entrepreneur who, you know, faces that kind of, all right, what's your marine strategy? What's your armored strategy? What's your police strategy for your company? I think you have to redefine the terms of engagement. I, I don't think you can play on those terms, right? Um, you, it, you really have, I, it, if you parse that, Right, so let's let's unpack it. Right, so um, what he's really saying is that he wants to see that that uh, that you have a plan to um, to essentially rush the category. Right, right. to how are you going to enter that category? You're taking the beach. Uh, yeah, <laughs> where's yeah. your Omaha? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but if I I would guess that the you know what I'm not even going to go there. Uh, I I was going to try to say that you can um you can try to fit uh your strategy into this ridiculous analogy um but uh I would say until uh, until they stop talking about the entrepreneur in those terms, maybe they're the wrong place for you to go. It's just that is that's really something that he should have to defend. And it's um, you're going to tell me what story that comes from so that I can follow up on it after this. Shall be done. And uh, what I would say to an entrepreneur listening to this, go back to Susan's advice of what <laughs> needs to be in your pitch deck in explaining your market and how you've entered that market and how you're expanding that market and what is exactly the market you're going after. And that makes a heck of a lot more sense than this World War II, yeah. you know, taking you, back, you know, you know, continental Europe strategy. The other know. Thing I would want to ask is when he said that. So um, I do see a shift, not a shift in uh, the number of of women who are being backed by legacy VCs, um, but definitely a shift in uh, in in self awareness. Um, and that will ultimately lead to change. I think there have been several things that have happened over the course of certainly the last year, 18 months, um, that have started to have an impact. The Ellen Pow trial, even though she lost. You know, the fact that, that this was being written about every single day for months and that... Um, that a well-respected forty-year-old uh, VC um, uh, really had to defend uh, their practices, made every other VC look harder at their own numbers, um, and to really think about whether they could defend themselves should a similar case come up. Um, uh, the fact that there are women at major tech companies who are 
stepping out and saying, we've got to be more transparent about our numbers. Um, uh, Tracy at at uh, Pinterest sent around a um, uh, a spreadsheet and said to all the women she knew working as engineers or product people um, at major tech companies, go around and count. Count the number of women in your department versus the number of men. Put it on this this sheet. Um, and for the first time, we had a sense of what the the engineering numbers were at these major tech companies, which are significantly worse than their their overall gender um, uh, numbers. And uh, you, you know, that's the beginning of seeing change. I read this morning that um, ten companies uh, at Davos have have committed to reaching gender parity by 2020, one of them being Twitter. Um, if Twitter decides that they are going to stake their flag on getting to gender parity by 2020, there are going to be other tech companies that are going to start talking about this and start thinking about it. So, uh, you know, there's definitely movement here and uh, where I think – Reed could have said something like that. I would be very surprised if he said that in the last three months. If he did, I'm more disturbed by it. Um, but I, I think that was definitely the attitude three, four years ago that um, that the entrepreneur everyone described was Mark Zuckerberg without the name on it. Uh, and it was definitely this fierce take no prisoners um, uh, I'm gonna win attitude yeah. uh, and I just said we do a better service to entrepreneurs if we just tell them what we're looking for, yeah, and what we're not looking for, and are straightforward this yeah. kind of some of this language or some of these like just not getting like here's what we need, here's what you need to do. Either yeah. get up to the bar or don't. It's okay. Yeah. What's for someone who has pitched and hears pitches? Your, you know, Heidi's view on, you know, got my little quotes going best practices in terms of a pitch deck right now. And knowing so many uh, of our listeners are. Women entrepreneurs, this is probably an early, you know, different from a Series B deck, but a, a seed or an angel deck, thoughts, ideas on what's best practice to make sure that information is in the deck. So so I'll get to the piece of the information that should be in the deck, uh, but I'll say one thing before that, which is I mentioned that you know, being an entrepreneur is very similar to being a salesperson, and salespeople get a lot of rejection. And and most of that rejection is completely unrelated to their activities. There's there's virtually nothing they could have done. It was either timing or, you know, they caught someone on a bad day or maybe they were having a bad day uh, or the product they were selling just didn't resonate in this particular instance. It's not dissimilar to pitching as an entrepreneur. So going into it knowing that even if you have the perfect pitch, you're going to strike out more than you're going to hit. That said, I think there's things you can do to help your odds. And uh, having a very clear and concise pitch that 
puts yourself in the place of investors. So I would say sitting on the other side when I sit in the angel investor shoes, I'm I'm very surprised at how many entrepreneurs haven't put themselves in the place of someone who says, okay, I either am investing my own money or I represent other people's money and I have to figure out how I'm going to get it back for them. So it doesn't have to be a very specific, you know, on January 29th in 2020, I will sell this company for X. I don't believe in that. I don't think you need to show, you know, what the exact exit strategy is. What you need to show is this is why this business will make money. It may not make money today. It may not make money in two years or three years or four years. But here's why this is going to be a big business. And here's why I will be successful making this a big business. If you can successfully do all of those things and then show why you're credible, you know, either people that are behind you, people on your advisory board, things you've accomplished. So you give them the, the what, the how, and the why. If you can do those three things, you'll definitely improve your odds. It's so important to say that in terms of you you need to realize that you know there's there's somebody's money is involved here. And if we were just giving it away, we'd be asking for the tax receipt because you're a 501c3. Right. <laughs> right. Right? And and to really be able to say I can be a good growth engine for your money and I want to make sure you get your money back and then some. And that like, and I know you have options. There are other people. There's competition out there. There are other entrepreneurs who you could invest in. You could invest in the stock market. You could invest in real estate. You, you are going to get a better return on me because fill in the blank. Yeah. I know you have. Yeah. That's a great way, but I know you have options. Let's get some practical. Not that our discussion sure. on mentoring wasn't <laughs> highly practical, but let's get practical about um, investor presentations because yeah. this is an area that, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs mm-hmm. struggle with. Yep. Because we're told, they are, they are told, pitch deck needs to be 12 pages. Mm-hmm. You need to do this. You need to do that. What's, yeah. what's some guidance in terms of how entrepreneurs should be approaching conversations yep. with investors and that yeah. darn pitch deck. Yep. So um, I would say that uh, that one area where I think a lot of people get into trouble is defining the market. Um, I, I see so many uh, young entrepreneurs – they have, they have a really interesting um, uh, platform or service or product that they've created. They know they're supposed to show a a big market opportunity. They size the market in such a way that it has very little real relationship to what it is they're building. So um, they show you that the market size for for housing is, you know, a gazillion dollars or the market for uh, uh, for uh, beauty services is, you know, X billion dollars. Uh, what they don't do is to carve down to the piece of this market that they can actually go after, right? What's the, what's the truly addressable market 
inside that. So I would say spend some real time and get someone to help you to think through what your true addressable market is. Don't just go and look for stats on the size of the sector that you are are moving into. Well, it's as if someone said, you know, my market are women. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's really unhelpful. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, yeah. Which, like, even if you said it's women 18 to 35. Yeah. Not so good. All right. Yeah. We, you know, like, you've got to keep breaking it down to, to what it really is. And even if that was just the entree point. Yeah, absolutely. And and the the opposite side of that I think is is um equally dangerous, which is that there are certain uh kinds of of businesses or certain sectors that have gone out of favor because it feels to a lot of investors like they're too small. So I'll give you an example. We invest in a company called Zola that uh is a universal wedding registry um, that allows you to uh, pull in products from anywhere on the internet onto your registry so that you can have a single registry instead of having three or four out there. Um, And it also allows you to to, uh, bring in experiences so you can register for, you know, fly fishing because you're going out to Idaho for a vacation, um, or allows you to to register for services. So I may want um, I may want Uber for my wedding present, <laughs> or a life coach, or exactly yoga yeah, instructor, yeah, yeah. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever it All may of be. That. Yeah. Um, so you know, if you just look at the uh, at the wedding arena, there are um, uh, I believe. Two million weddings a year, and I'm doing this from memory. Um, and about a million and a half of those are weddings where, you know, you will actually have a big ceremony and a party. Um, so that feels like a small audience. Uh, what you need to do in that case is to build out from that and to look at the number of people who buy gifts for a wedding, right? Which is vastly larger, um, but on top of that, what they've built, this platform, is so engaging and so unique that people are starting to use it for other kinds of registries, even though they don't have any of those products on their on their site right now. So people are using it for baby registries or for my new home registries. Um, and because they've built a great product, they can now start thinking about how this how this can be used through multiple different segments. Um, And even whether there is a millennial consumer who thinks differently about about their lives, where they are going to have a lifelong registry. You know, I would love my daughters to, to have a constant registry that lets me know what they want, what they what they're thinking about right now. It makes life so much easier to to think about gifting when you can go someplace and see the things that have inspired this person or excited this person or that they really, really want. Um, so it's almost like a Pinterest board that is very easy to shop. 
And I was just thinking about Pinterest. It's almost better than that because there's things that inspire us and things that we want to (laughs) own or things that we like. Yes. Love, yes. you know. Buy this, please. Yeah, exactly. Or this looks like a very cool place, but yeah. I don't want to visit it. So right. don't give Absolutely. me that trip. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, even, so true. But even thinking of their platform, even if it was just weddings. Right. Yeah. Two million is not a big market. Right. Yeah. And, but by yeah. saying, no, 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 this is what it actually means exactly. is the ecosystem. Yes. And, and so. Yes. And from, so again, that addressable market, you can, you, you can make two mistakes here. You can either make it uh, look too big, and I'm immediately going to know that that's really not your addressable market, or you can make it feel too narrow um, when, in fact, if you put more thought into it and you really built a case, there is a much bigger market, even though it's in a segment that initially feels relatively small. Right. It's such a great example. Thank you for bringing that one up. I think another place people get into trouble is on uh, the competitive set. And I see this all the time where, uh, where entrepreneurs have either not spent enough time digging into the competitive set uh, and uh, therefore don't know all the people who are, who are operating in the same space or they want to hide the ones that they feel like truly are competitive, and so they don't put them on that chart. Now, either way, huge mistake. Um, I'm going to find out because as I diligence this, if I really care about what it is you're building, I'm going to spend the time to find out who else is in that, that arena um, and I'm going to spend time looking at whether their product is better than yours. So uh, make sure that you know more about the competitive set than anybody else you are talking to ever will. Well, because it says something about the entrepreneur. It does. Yeah. And all of a sudden, even if they had a good product, but they've not said things or they've not found them, you're like, hold on a minute here. Yeah. Yeah. Are you the right CEO? Do I want to back you? Right. Yeah. You know, this come this this you know, the the question that annoys most entrepreneurs when we say we invest in the team. This is where that team comes Absolutely. in. Are you material that yep. I can back? Yeah. Yeah. And do I feel like you are going to be so rigorous and um and actually competitive, right? That that I want to build something that is the best in my space. And so I need to know everything everyone else is doing so that I can continue to build a competitive advantage. Is this somewhere that there's a difference between male entrepreneurs and female entrepreneurs in terms of that confidence? Like, yeah, there's competitors, but I'm going to kill it versus, ooh, there's other people. Maybe you're not going to want to back me. Yeah, you know, I I haven't thought about that. I I think there's definitely a different, um, you see different uh, attitudes uh, that that male and female entrepreneurs have. I think women are, and I I hate to overgeneralize, and there's always going to be people who, who, uh, who don't fall into the, um, the more general description. But I think in general, women tend to lay out the business they believe 
they can build, right? But the business that is in front of them, two years out, three years out, this is what I think I can accomplish. Guys tend to, you know, really present what it is they think this could be, um, which is is always the, you know, multi-billion dollar idea. And women need a little bit more of that. I think guys also need a little bit more of what women do, which is, you know, I'm going to show you how I get from point A to point B to point C. Yeah, give me that 64% uh, <laughs> yeah. that first round uh, yeah. showed. You know, yeah. I need I need a exactly. little more of that rigor and discipline exactly. and efficiency. And yeah. uh, uh, before we leave this topic um, of decks, what do you what do you think should be in a uh, in a pitch deck? And then my follow up on that is going to mm-hmm. be: What do you want to see in an investor meeting when you've got that pitch deck yep. in front of you? Yeah. Um, so I I do think limiting the number of slides you're presenting is a really good idea. You can always have an appendix that's got you know more in it, um, but I want to understand the big idea. Um, I, I, I want to understand the problem it's solving, why it is going to materially change things. Um, I want to understand the market size. I want to understand the competitive set. Um, I want to understand, you know, how your product works. Give me, give me more meat. Um, I want to, uh, I want to understand how you're going to make money. Um, and that doesn't mean how you're going to make money right now. And it's actually perfectly fine to say um, that, you know, we are testing revenue options here. Um, we think that this is going to be a subscription business or a this or a that. Um, but, you know, we will we will really know that once we've been in business for another six months and these four tests we're doing um, can actually be measured against each other so that we understand what consumers are willing to pay for. That's fine as long as I understand that you do believe that there is a there's a business model here. Um, uh, and uh, I want to understand, you know, what your your trends have been. So what are your, if you started six months ago, what does it look like? How many, how many users did you have month one? How's it trending now? Um, if you had had revenue from day one, what does that look like? And, and how's that trending? Because again, you know, I need to understand that this is actually a venture business, not a good small business. Um, and I really need to know more about the team. So I I think doing a team slide is great, but that's what I'm really trying to understand during that meeting is, do I believe you have the stuff to really grow a great business? And um, I I like much better when I have you know, two founders in a room together because seeing the dynamic between them um, gives you a really good sense of whether these people are 
are destined to stay together or whether there's going to be a problem here. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've seen the you know the the little hints of there's there's tension here already. Um, it's always not a good sign. Uh, it's good to have two strong opinions, but that that tension where you know, like so, this is uh, yeah, like, someone's absolutely. trying to be top dog here, and this absolutely. is not going to turn out well. Yes, absolutely. Um, but that's actually another stat that that uh, I think is worth um, entrepreneurs thinking about, which is that lone founders have a much harder time succeeding than founding teams. So, you know, two founders, even three founders, um, often have a much better chance of getting to that Series A, getting to a Series B, um, because you've got you've got somebody from the start who is really thinking through with you each major decision point, um, and you're able to essentially create um, what would be the perfect entrepreneur and and all the qualities we look for there spread across a couple of people, right? Not everybody has has every skill set. And so finding the the complementary co-founder can be the difference between success or failure. Yeah, sort of thinking about you know building a company God bless to have the 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 arrogance to think you know it all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that we always hear a lot about is people who are thought leaders and people mm-hmm. who are influencers, and that's just bantered around everywhere. Um, what's the difference between being a thought leader and influencer in your mind? Wow. <clears throat> so. Um, you know, I I have very mixed feelings about the race to you know get followers and the the heavy focus on becoming uh, a thought leader because uh, there are some great thought leaders, obviously, and and we could probably go through the ones we follow and the people who we think genuinely add to the conversation. There's a whole lot of other people who who are kind of gaming the system in order to get more people to follow them, and those are the people who like to call themselves influencers. Um, so uh, I... I think there's a there's probably too much focus among you know young women who want to have an an impact on this world more focus on can I get another tweet out can I um can I publish another 600 word x or y um and uh they are not doing it necessarily to really Add to the world's knowledge. They are doing it because they can package it in a way that they believe another thousand or ten thousand people are going to not only read it but decide that they are going to follow you. 
Yeah. Um, I always think about, like, what's the substance behind? Like, when someone totally. says they're a thought leader, like, what's, like, is it a track record in work? Is it research? Is it, where's the substance? Uh, I think that's exactly right. Um, and the yeah. other feels, you know, yeah. it's, some, of, some of them have really worked hard in terms of YouTube followers or something else, but yeah. it it feels, you know, sort of flashed to me in that way. But I got to ask you, for someone with your background yeah. in media and e-commerce, influencers become really oh, important. Oh, they're incredibly important. In those business yeah, models. No question. Yeah. And, and look, I'm, I'm on one level the wrong person to ask about this. <laughs> That's why I'm asking. <laughs> because, uh, look, I'm old, right? Uh, this is not... Um, age is I, an attitude, I'm, I'm Susan. Age is an attitude. <laughs> and, and I believe that. I'm fascinated by this influencer culture. Um, and uh, it's it's really uh, an extension or a, a codifying of something that has always existed, which is that there's always the cool kid in some group who seems to know before everybody else what the you know what the best pair of jeans are to buy and what eyeliner really works best, and you know any number of other things. Who the cool band is now. Um, and with the rise of social media, you can actually make your your set significantly larger than it would have been when you were in high school. Uh, so it's uh, it's not a new phenomenon. It's new platforms that allow people to really broaden their base. Um, but I think that's very different from being a thought leader. Thank you for listening to Broad Mike. We welcome your feedback. Find us on Facebook, where you will have show notes and additional references for a deeper dive into today's topic. Subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode. Please review our podcast on iTunes, which will help other listeners discover Broad Mike and grow the Broad Mike community. Broad Mike is produced by Christy Mirabel with editing by John Marshall Media. Our executive producer is Sarah Weinheimer. Think broad.